Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. The Bowery Boys, episode 51, McSorley's Old Ale House. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg. Tom is not here this week. So today on the show... It's just going to be you and me, and we're going to have a couple beers at one of New York's most venerated institutions to getting trashed in the city. That would be McSorley's Old L House. The city has very few places like McSorley's, a downtown saloon at 15 East 7th Street, which has been open for over 150 years and looks and feels every bit of it. It's been the muse of painters and writers and has entertained celebrities and politicians and most every other profession, for that matter. This is not any old bar. McSorley's looks to be stuck in some shifting era between the late 19th century and the early 20th century. Everything in it has this like amber glow to it from old age and dust and who knows what. Uh, There's no music outside of some inevitable drunken singing in the back room. What greets you instead is an old wooden bar with no stools. If you want to sit, you can take to one of the wooden tables, which are backed against the walls, Walls, which of course are covered with old aging memorabilia, framed newspapers and portraits, dull colored paintings, you know, just all this amazing stuff dangling from the walls that in any other place in New York City would be behind glass in a well-lit museum because a lot of it is original old souvenirs and everything. It's incredible. Now, if you're lucky on a cold night, you can grab a table by the original coal-burning stove that's in the front room. The famous New Yorker writer Joseph Mitchell wrote a book about the bar called McSorley's Wonderful Saloon, which was a book that was culled from magazine articles that he had written and released in 1943. About that particular stove, he writes... In the center of the room stands the belly stove, which has an isinglass door and is exactly like the stoves in elevated stations. All winter, Kelly keeps it red hot. Warmer you get, drunker you get, he said. Now, like a few of the more rustic Irish pubs in this city, the floor is covered in sawdust to soak up all sorts of things, I guess. If you're thirsty for, say, an apple teeny, well, I mean, if you even ask for one, they might throw you out. But say they wanted to make you one, they couldn't. Because the only thing they serve are ales, two different kinds, a light one and a dark one. That's it. Actually, I think maybe you can now get soda, but, I mean, you're in McSorley's. Why would you drink soda? You get these ales in mugs that are just slightly smaller than a regular mug, but you get two of them at once. 
and it's not that expensive. And in fact, you'll regularly see people leave the bar with handfuls of mugs, and it's just their own drinks. You can call McSorley's Pickled, or you can call it a living museum, or the ultimate dive bar. However you happen to call it, it's one of the best places in the whole city to, well, maybe literally breathe in a part of old New York. Now, not surprisingly, the story begins in Ireland in the 1840s with the Irish potato famine, a plight that affected Ireland's leading food source, the potato, and drove most of the population into poverty and disease and starvation. So, of course, many thousands immigrated out of the country to all points abroad, but most of them ending up, not surprising, in New York. Now, one of these desperate Irishmen who came over in the year 1851 was a 24-year-old man by the name of John McSorley. Obviously, as one of millions of young Irishmen in the city, it would have been difficult to find satisfactory employment at first. He certainly must have either had some funds saved up to begin with, or was able to do well enough in three short years that he was able to enter an occupation that would be very popular and upwardly mobile at the time, that of a saloon keeper. In many cases during this period, owning and maintaining a tavern actually acquired you political and social power. Could you imagine somebody running for office today on the strength of owning a bar? So whether to achieve some kind of social stature or just to make a quick buck, John opened his bar in 1854 and originally called it The Old House and Home, and that would actually be its name for over 50 years. It's believed that John based his bar on a public alehouse that he knew back home in Oma, in the county Tyrone in Northern Ireland. But then, I mean, there's thousands of saloons, taverns, grocers, and, and jovial places of drink, what have you, and hundreds of those that were specifically catered to the Irish. So what exactly made McSorley's unique? Part of it, I think, which might be obvious, was the rather uniform but apparently delicious ale that was specially made at a place called Videlio Brewery, a local brewer that had begun production in 1852 and which at one point in their history during the pre-prohibition years would produce up to 400,000 barrels of delicious beer in a year. I don't think all for McSorley's, however. Another key to its success might have been McSorley's location. In particular, it was only a half block away from the newly built Cooper Union. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, Cooper Union was a privately run university founded in 1859 by inventor extraordinaire Peter Cooper. Well, legend has it that Abraham Lincoln himself stopped into McSorley's for a refreshing beverage after giving his legendary Cooper Union address in February of 1860. What they claim to be his actual chair that he sat down in to have his drink even hangs behind the bar today. How they could possibly have known to save the chair of a man who had not yet even been elected, much less lionized as the greatest president of the United States, is beyond me, but there it is. But you know, if there is any question about where Lincoln sat at McSorley's, there's no question about another bar favorite, Peter Cooper himself, who frequented the bar so often that today his is one of the most popular images hanging in the bar with a large portrait of the inventor staring down at drinkers in the back room. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. 
It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. McSorley seems to be kind of caught up in all waves of New York City history. Boss Tweed of Tammany Hall fame did a bit of drinking here. During the 1863 draft riots, New York's fighting 69th Infantry Unit actually turned the tavern into a headquarters. If you go inside McSorley's, hanging on one wall is an 1883 invitation to the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge. In fact, by that time, the place was clearly famous enough that it became the subject of a popular 1882 vaudevillian musical play called McSorley's Inflation. John himself, of course, was doing very nicely at this time. He married in 1855, and six years later, his son William was born. When young Bill was only 14 years old, John apprenticed him at the bar and would eventually co-manage the place with his father. Now remember, it's still called old house and home by this point in 1908 the sign on the front of the building blows off during a storm and well i mean i guess since it's off anyway you might as well just rename the place to of course mcsorley's old ale house it would become even more of a monument to john when he died in 1910 now john was a huge admirer of memorabilia and he collected anything he could find and plastered it all over the walls of the place it's claimed then that his son Bill, who took over the bar, basically froze the walls, not taking anything down ever again, although, of course, much more would be piled on on top of it over the years. McSorley's became even more popular during the 20th century. When there's cheap liquor, there's bound to be writers and artists, for instance. Artist John Sloan, one of the original turn-of-the-century painters of the Ashcan movement, immortalized in a series of paintings with his 1912 work, entitled simply McSorley's Bar, one of his most well-known. What's striking about the painting is that it could have very well been painted today if the artist was just sitting in the corner and just looking at what was happening, and of course if a couple actors in period dress had come in for a drink. That painting, by the way, is also hanging in the back room, or at least a print of it is anyway. Poet E.E. E. Cummings wrote a famous poem here called I Was Sitting at McSorley's, which I'll read a little bit. I'll try and convey this with no capital letters. I was sitting in McSorley's. Outside, it was New York and beautifully snowing. Inside, snug and evil. The slobbering walls filthily push witless creases of screaming warmth. Chuck pillows are noise funnily swallowed, swallowing revolvingly. Well, you get the point. This is E.E. E. Cummings for you. McSorley's courted its share of iconic musicians. Woody Guthrie was actually photographed here having a few drinks and strumming on his guitar. Frank Sinatra was no stranger to McSorley's, often bringing along a few of his Rat Pack buddies. In fact, Dean Martin really loved the place, although I'm sure he might have been a little disappointed that they didn't sell scotch. And of course, no surprise, Elvis was here. 
After performing at Madison Square Garden, he crashed McSorley's, got a bit soused himself, and then performed a few songs there, which, I mean, the place is not that big to actually have seen Elvis sing. And, I mean, in my mind, he's gyrating, as he would on stage, on that sawdust floor. Well, that would have been totally outrageous. John Lennon never performed there, but he would come in during the afternoons to write. And, in fact, sitting at the same table where I sat down to write these very words of the script. You can just go down the list of famous patrons. Teddy Roosevelt, Will Rogers, Babe Ruth, Joseph Kennedy. Of course, what you might be noticing, however, is the lack of famous female personalities. Well, before 1970, if you can believe this, McSorley's slogan was good ale, raw onions, and no women. That's right, no women. In fact, the only representation of a woman was a suggestive nude painting that hung and still hangs in the back room. Even in the 1930s, when the ownership of the bar passed out of the McSorley family and into that of a female owner named Dorothy O'Connell Kerwin, even she would never step into the place. Well, at least during opening business hours, as far as we know. The tavern had actually been even known to turn away patrons during dangerous stormy weather if the men had women with them. However, never fear, there was, according to sources, one actual woman who ever gained admittance during this time, and it was probably somewhere around the turn of the century. Her name was good old Maggie Klein, and she was an Irish-American vaudevillian and songstress, best known for that rousing song that I'm sure you all know, Throw em Down, McClowski. So how did old Maggie get in? Well, easy, she just disguised herself as a man. So finally, in 1970... McSorley's was forced by a court order to finally admit women. The first woman's name was Barbara Schaum. Who the first woman was not was Dorothy, the owner, who had made a promise to her deceased father that she would never enter the bar, the bar that she owned, during business hours. Also of note, two hours after serving that first woman, another lady came in and promptly got into a fight with a group of men, proving that drunken, unruly behavior does not stop with the XY chromosome. Today, by the way, the bar's slogan is Be Good or Be Gone. Of course, women go there all the time today, but let's just say this place is not for the Sex in the City crowd. But they do have a ladies' room now. That's good news to report. Something that was only installed in 1986, 16 years after women were allowed to drink there. You know, there are so many tales about McSorley's that I could just go on forever recounting all these legends, such as those handcuffs that are hanging down on the foot railing. Those purportedly belonged to Harry Houdini, a pair the famous magician probably escaped from quite easily. And what about those dusty wishbones up on the lamp? Well, as the story goes, a group of young soldiers going to fight in World War One left the bones on the lamp, and as each returned from duty, he would return to McSorley's and take his wishbone down. So yes, the wishbones that remain and are still there are those from young men who did not return from the war. At least that's how the story goes. You know, there are a thousand other tales, so ultimately you should go there sometime, just find some little thing that's hanging on the wall, and there's bound to be a fascinating story, and I'll bet you the owners or one of the bartenders will be able to tell you Or you can just go there and enjoy the ambience. Or just go there and get drunk like many, many, many thousands of people before you. So that was my little tale on McSorley's Old Ale House. Thank you very much for listening. I will, at this time, always on the podcast, plug the website, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. 
and I'll have a few pictures of McSorley's old pictures, as well as other stories regarding events of the day here in New York City. Tom's back next week, and our topic will be a biography of a New Yorker that I have think has been the most influential New Yorker to the city's history. So that's your little clue. So thanks a lot for listening, and have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.